0: This is sort of the foundation of how you create that emotional experience for the audience or for the reader.
1: Your protagonist goes through a series of experiences that lead to a transformation. Everything in the story must keep changing.
2: Point of no return is the one moment that's external to the character,
3: which is a very specific thing that happens once in the screenplay. The clock isn't ticking quite as fast yet.
4: Think of it as four, 15 minute scripts
5: that each one builds on the last. If you're writing a 120-page script, or, you know, it's 10
6: pages a sequence. If you write, if you're more like
5: a 100-page script, it's eight or nine pages a sequence. It's
6: not deciding what you will write, it's providing a form and a template with which the writer pours their story into. There's
7: not enough scenes here, there's not enough that, that's happening for this to fill two hours. I feel like
8: I've heard about that before. What is this crazy thing called the hero's journey? I mean, That's what a carpenter would do if he wanted to make a table. He would take a table apart and see how it was put together. That's what a mechanic would do if he wanted to build an engine.
0: Let me preface it by saying this is what it's sort of built on. I mean my the underlying philosophy of all storytelling, whether you're a novelist or screenwriter, movie maker, TV writer, whatever it might be, is that your primary goal as a storyteller must be to elicit emotion. You must create an emotional experience for the audience if it's a movie or a play or for the reader if you're a screenwriter and you have to get, get it read so you can get the movie made or if you're a novelist or whatever. So your primary goal has to be to create emotion. And this is a way to accomplish that goal. These are the, this is sort of the foundation of how you create that emotional experience for the audience or for the reader. And so these six stages are the six stages you're going to take your hero through and also the audience through as we go from the beginning of the story to the end. So the first of the six stages, what constitutes the first 10% of the story is what I call the setup. That's simply where we introduce the hero, you create an emotional connection to that character, you show her living her everyday life. Then there's a turning point, the opportunity, something new happens, that takes us into the second stage. That's the next 15% of the movie or the script. Uh, By the way, the percentages if novelists are watching this are a little more fluid. You don't have to stick quite as closely but in scripts there are one or two pages on either side of these percentages pretty pretty consistently. So the second stage, the second 15% of the movie is what I call a new situation. Your hero has now been presented with some event that takes them somewhere new. It might be geographically new or just some new circumstance where they have to figure out what's going on. Then something happens at the one quarter mark at the end of Act One that is going to move the character towards a specific visible goal. They are going to then declare and begin pursuing a specific finish line that they want to reach by the end of the story. My term for that is the outer motivation for the character because it's outwardly visible and it's their desire. So it might be to stop a serial killer, it might be to win the love of the love interest in the movie, whatever. Now they begin pursuing that so they go into act two and the first half of act two is stage three. That's progress. They formulate a plan and the plan seems to work. The obstacles start getting bigger and bigger until finally, at the midpoint of that story, they're going to make a bigger commitment to the goal. Up to that point, they sort of had one foot in, one foot out. Now they're going to reach what I call the point of no return. Something's going to happen that demands of them that they sort of put both feet in. So they're going to devote everything they can now to achieving the goal. They can't back up. They they burn their bridges behind them so to speak. So that moves them into stage four which is complications and higher stakes because the further into the story the character goes the more is at stake because it, the goal becomes more and more important to them but also the harder it is to achieve the goal. The outside world is going to start closing in. The bad guy's going to discover that the hero is after him or whatever it might be. So it gets tougher and tougher and tougher until at the three-quarter mark, right at the end of act two, the hero is going to suffer or encounter a major setback. Something's going to happen that destroys seemingly any hope of achieving the goal. Uh, The plan is out the window. The worst possible thing that could happen happens. And so in response to that, the hero will do two things. First, the hero is going to retreat and try and go back to the life they were living at the beginning and give up on the goal. But that doesn't work they're not satisfied they're not fulfilled or they just can't give up because somebody's life is at stake or whatever so then they make one last all or nothing do or die final push and that's stage five which is the final push it's putting everything on the line giving every ounce of courage and energy they have until they reach the final turning point, the fifth turning point and that's the climax. That's where everything gets resolved. That's where the hero faces the villain for the last time or the hero wins the love of the love interest and, and they decide they're going to live happily ever after or whatever that climax might be. And then the sixth stage is what I call the aftermath because we need to see the new life that this hero, that this character is going to live having completed this journey. And that's pretty much it. It's, it's like a before-and-after picture, starting out in an everyday life, going through this journey to accomplish this goal and then in the end seeing how their life has been transformed because they took this journey.
3: One of my favorite uh, instructors that I worked with, his name is Ron Mita. Uh, he taught a class um, over in Valencia and he wrote um, SWAT and then I think he sold some stuff. He developed uh, robots for Blue Sky or something. Really good guy, very practical, um, great writer, very cool guy. He's amazing for pitching as well. Um, and he had this. He was the one that introduced me to this idea of just 24 plot points. And um, and he said, just you know, literally, just write down 24, just 24 numbers, and just put PP plot point, plot point, plot point, and then break it down into you know the first act, uh, and then you know most people say first, second, and third but everybody divides it at the midpoint. Now, it really comes down to how do you define an act? And in researching um, when I was working on the videos, I was trying to come up with a good definition for act. And you know, I looked at Robert McKee, Truby, Trottier, um, a lot of the greats and uh, I couldn't find a very clear specific definition of an act. So I, you know, I'm ridiculously pedantic so I I really tried to come down to this uh, boil it down to its essence I try to be as precise as I can with the terms and definitions like for example um, inciting incident that word's always that terms always bothered me just because technically every single sequence has an inciting incident has an incident that's inciting the next behavior Um, Snyder will refer to as the catalyst a catalyst is where you take two elements a chemical reaction that's already going to happen and a catalyst speeds it up. So what you're saying is that the catalyst is gonna take something that's inevitable and enhances it. That's why I call it the impetus. An impetus is a force that moves, that motivates movement. And that's, which is a very specific thing that happens once in the screenplay. So that, that, and that's, you know, that's my terminology that I use. I think whatever metaphor helps people make sense of the story and take care of the essential elements, that's fine. So Ron Mita's approach was basically, put the 24 plot points, uh, plot point six is end of act one, plot point 12 is a midpoint, plot point 18 is your low point, and then plot point, I think it was, 21 is your climax, and then after that's falling action. Very simple, and it's like we would, we would literally just sit there and plot out a story in an hour and it's, it's super pragmatic. So from there, um, it really came down to trying to understand, all right, if we keep dividing everything the midpoint, um, like Pilar, for example, she'll use uh, act 2A and 2B. And it kept on begging this question: What is an act? And that's the big question. And when everybody, you know, there, there's people like uh, like David Franzoni. He came to CalArts gave one of my favorite lectures on story ever. And he's like, "Fuck three act structure. There's no <laughs> such thing as acts. You just understand story. You get into character, and you throw a conflict at them, and they pursue their objectives. And don't worry about acts. And that's fine. That if that works for you, that's awesome. I don't like to me, all of it's modular. All of it is. is use it as assets that help you write and anything that's holding you back from writing let it go you know it has this kind of it, to me i like to understand things as thoroughly as i can i learn very slowly and thoroughly and then let go whenever the story needs to take its own direction um, so the way i look at an act is essentially defined by strategies so a character the the first act is a character has a specific strategy which is their normal daily life. This is the value systems that that have gotten them to this point in life. So when the impetus comes in and throws their life out of balance, they find suddenly that they have to, they start to negotiate it and try and be like, well, I don't wanna change my life, I don't wanna do anything. But the second they cross that threshold and begin to shift into a new strategy, then they've crossed into a new act. So what I've found every single time is that um, Act Two, for example, um, you usually have a character that's you know trying something new, like Tootsie. Um, he's <laughs> How did jer- you know
5: I watched that as a kid. Oh god,
3: so great! Pollock is brilliant. Um, so uh, you have uh, Michael Dorsey, who's dressed as Dorothy Michaels and he's having success and everything he's doing is bringing him more and more success and it looks like, hey, this new strategy is working. Before that, his strategy was, I'm gonna be a difficult actor until no one will work with him. So he hits his breaking point, all right, I'm gonna dress as a woman and commit completely to the role. And, um, And he sees nothing but success until he hit the midpoint when everything that he's doing feels like it's paying off but ultimately betrays his authenticity. So it's at the midpoint where basically you feel like you're getting everything you want and this can, com, is completely subjective to the needs of the story. This is just generally how the, um, how the structure tends to go. But when you hit the midpoint, often you're, you learn that you are as far away from your original objective as you could be thinking that you're just about to achieve it, generally speaking. Mm. And that realization, whatever that is, the introduction of a new conflict or something like that, creates a kind of uh, shift in strategy. And usually that strategy is very like frantic and coping. and So all the value systems that had informed that earlier strategy of, hey, everything's gonna work, you hit the midpoint and it's failing and you just come tumbling down the mountain till you get down to the low point. Because all... well, the, the first two acts are all about setup. And then the second two are all about payoff. So that, sec- that, that third, what I define as an act, what is to be, but I just call it act three, it's easier that way, Um, is really just a strategy of collapsing down the hill until you get to the low point. So all of those choices are paying off but for the bad. The most important thing is if you've invested in a character and you care about what the character wants, you understand what the character wants, and you understand what's at stake if they don't get it, you're free to do anything you want. You can play with structure, throw away structure altogether. As long as you have that, like Sorkin says, worshiping it at the altar of intent and conflict. Is that mm-hmm. it? Um, yeah, I should get my quotes down a little better. Um, but it's, it really comes down to um, understanding the nature of character. Every scene has to have a kind of emotional uh, motivation. And if it's not emotional, then we're, not, we're going to disengage. It's not, just, it's not just conflict. It should be conflict that's increasing as we're going along. So I mean, you know, I see a. I see a lot of television and movie. I mean, right now is a great time for writers. There's so much good writing. There's so much really strong writing. Um, a lot of it comes down to pacing. A lot of it comes down to really making sure that the audience is with the main character, and that their choices are making sense, and that that you care about how this is going to affect the way they're moving forward. But I think if you're tracking that, and most you know most writers, we're all you know we're delving into ourselves to try and pull out this meaning. Um, a lot of it, like for example, working with with producers, um, most of the notes that I'll get um, tend to be kind of you know just tracking like, does it make sense that this character would do this at this time, you know? And it's about trying to project and and, and uh, project yourself into the character and understand the intentions and if that's consistent with your overall uh, character profile.
9: One of the single most important aspects of screenwriting, any long form narrative, even novel writing too, just screenwriting in particular, is change. Things, thus Everything in the story must keep changing. As it flows, it got. You know, it has to be different five, ten minutes from now than than it, what the circumstances were previously ten minutes ago. It has to keep changing, and I I ha- came to believe there had to be a pattern of change. Um, and what I discovered was this. This gets a little numeric, you know. But stick with me for this uh, uh, because it's it's important and I think enormously useful. Uh, three acts okay in a in a screenplay you've got three acts first act in act 1 i noticed there are six sequences following one another that i called i came to call hero goal sequences here's the definition for a hero goal sequence a hero goal sequence is any two-to-seven-page section of your screenplay in which and through which your hero or heroine pursues one short-term goal, physical short-term goal, only one, as one step toward achieving the overall story goal. Right? Just, just that little piece of it. And at the end of that, Seven or so, nothing is exact, you know, but seven or so pages, something happened or some discovery is made by this hero that I call fresh news. In other words, they turn up something that was unknown by them and by us, by the audience, about what they are doing that puts an end to that current single goal and offers up a new short term physical single goal to be pursued in the next step and that there are six of these hero goal sequences six little individual pursuits of individual specific goals in the entirety of act 1 and what we call there's many names for uh, this plot point 1 there's the the the, the first major turning point uh, that kind of thing i call it stunning surprise 1 when stunning surprise 1 happens which ends act 1 officially and dramatically ends act 1 and kicks the hero forward tumbling head over heel into act 2 I call it Stunning Surprise 1 because that should be, I believe, the emotional impact on both the hero and the audience. It needs to be emotional and it needs to be impactful, not abstract. That always happens in Hero Goal Sequence 6, always. And it continues. In the first half of the second act, there are six more Hero Goal Sequences. And hero goal sequence number 12 always contains the midpoint sequence. That's a separate discussion, the midpoint is a, a fascinating part of movies that work and it's, it's, it's rich and layered with things that go on relative to character growth and relative to the plot being you know bumped up to the next level and all but it always happens in number 12. In the second half of Act 2, there are six more wonder of wonders. There are six more hero goal sequences and hero goal sequence 18 always contains stunning surprise 2. Not 17, not 19, 18 in every movie that works for audiences. In, every, in other words, every hit movie that you can analyze because it's doing something right, this is the pattern. And then in Act Three, it's the only act where it can vary, where the numbers can vary. And in Act Three, you have between two and five hero goal sequences. I don't recommend five. Five is. Good movies have been made with five, like. Uh, uh, as Good As It Gets, which has to be you know, one of my favorite romantic comedies kind of stuff. It has five hero goal sequences in, in, in rather extended act three. But the audience is getting antsy and it's time to get out by then. I, I, the standard, the average of movies that work is, is 21, 21 hero goal sequences. 18 for acts one and two and then another three in act three. This is a way, I know it sounds kind of weird and mathematical at this point, but this is a way of quantifying change. It tells you in advance, this must happen in these few pages. There, it, it also goes beyond that. I mean, people were asking you, well, and what specifically happens in each one of these? Can you nail that down? In a general way, yeah, I do that in the book you know I say well these things usually happen in hero goal sequence number four you know that kind of stuff but that's up for grabs and up for people to play with but structurally the bones are these 20 to 23 hero goal sequences laid out in this exact way and they don't change.
8: But I think the parts that that cause people that make People, the most curious, have to do with our analysis of a movie of the week. And the, when we first wrote the book, there were a lot of movies of the week, in which we talked about the seven act structure of a television show. And the seven act structure, you know, there is a three act structure to stories. All stories have a three act structure. But in the Renaissance, for example, stories had five acts. And that's because they divided the horrible act two that everyone hates, I call it the Serengeti plane uh, because it's you know it's the hardest part of the writing. They divided it into three acts and now there's a five-act story and it's easier to write because each act has a beginning, middle and end and each act can be subdivided into twists and turns and scenes. So television goes, goes even further and makes it seven acts and that's because of commercials that have to come after each act, etc. So people were curious to see that. But when they saw that that the executives at the studios actually had a chart, some of them actually took the chart into a pitch meeting and wrote down, um, jotted down what you know in the chart what the writer what the pitch was saying about what happens in each act and so on. So here's a filled out one based on a movie that we produced and it shows one-liners of the scenes that occur in each act and I think people realized that this was um, they did didn't realize how mechanical it was. And and honestly when I hear that which I do often from writers when I'm in the old days at least when I was teaching at university extensions all over the country, uh, I realized that they didn't have the mentality to be writers. So let me give you a great example, a woman named Millie Meyer, God rest her soul, wonderful wonderful lady was a client for years, came up to me at a Riverside UC Riverside workshop after and she goes, I didn't want to say anything in front of the class because I didn't want people to make fun of me. But I took my favorite book, The Grapes of Wrath and I outlined it. And is that stupid? And I said, no, you're the only craftsman in the class. <laughs> I mean, that's what a carpenter would do if he wanted to make a table he would take a table apart and see how it was put together. That's what a mechanic would do if he wanted to build an engine. He'd take an engine apart. So that's exactly what you do. And that, when, I, when they see this kind of breakdown they understand you know, exactly how the mechanics of it work and honestly until you get to that point you're really not ready to be a professional writer because if you thought that writing was a magic, you know magic trick that you have to pull off every time, or a miracle, which I guess most writers probably would think miracle rather than magic trick, then it's impossible. right? But it's not possible. I mean, it's not impossible. It's possible to be a writer. People have been writers for centuries. They've been storytellers. and, and storytellers tell stories in parts. And they know what the parts are and they do them in a way that makes sense and uh, so the sooner you get down to the mechanics of how it works the better and that's what we try to do in our books is to show people the mechanics I'm looking through for another there's another page in here where we show what we call an intensity chart where you kind of type one-liners of your whole story on it on a single piece of paper one-liners of all the important scenes in the story then you go between the lines and let's say you put hyphens, two hyphens for a non dramatic scene or a scene with relatively little drama and like five hyphens for a scene with much more drama and ten hyphens with maximum drama, right? So now you've got a page that has all these hyphens on it underneath the sentences, right? Then you draw a line across the hyphens uh, connecting the hyphens. And then you turn it on its side. You turn the piece of paper on its side, and what you've got is something that looks like a roller coaster, and because it it shows you the ups and downs in your stories, based on the drama, the intensity of the drama in your stories, and uh, that is a great diagnostic tool. Because if you see that there's a whole slope that in which the thing keeps going down, 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 and doesn't go up for a while, or it levels off. Then you know you need to work on that part of your story. So that's what I call the mechanical approach. You know what I mean by mechanics? Like when you when you want to outline a screenplay or a book, you just use three three by five cards, and you put on those three by five cards the obligatory scenes in the book. And you won't fill up a whole card because it'll just be a couple of words on each card. And what you understand when you start doing that is that creation of a literary work is what Aristotle called an imitation of reality. It's not reality. You're not re, you know building the cider house and, and the world around the cider house. You're faking it. You're making the reader believe it's there. And, and you do that mechanically by like I would if I were making the movie. I build a house front that looks like the cider, cider house, right? But it wouldn't have a back because I'm only going to shoot the front of it. So that's what you're doing when you're writing. You're, you're just doing what's necessary to create the illusion that you're trying to create and the audience believes that the illusion is real because it wants to believe that and you've given them enough evidence to make them believe it. So you know when you're watching one of the old movies when they were just nobody was dealing with production value the way we do now. You know it just takes a little bit to make you believe in the story even if the acting is bad right even if the set is laughable but you still are in the story if the story is good you know if if the characters are good and the dialogue is good and, and that's one of the things that we try to instill in writers is learn the mechanics of it because it's easier than than you make it you're not having to recreate a whole world you 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 need to do the right strokes to make the painting look like a person, and uh, that's what we try to do in you know the treatment book. This this shows you what you know. This is what you're doing as you do it. You you're writing little sort sentences and you're putting hyphens and then you're drawing a line connecting them all. But then when you put it on the side, you can see the shape of your story, and you can see where it needs some attention. You know where that you know there is all these peaks here, but no. Real valleys, so it would be much more dramatic if you dropped some of the intensity, or you added less intense scenes in here, so that the rises would be greater, etc. And you know, it could be that everything is just fine when you do this, and it looks really perfect. But most of the time, you'll discover that it's not a roller coaster ride, which is what you want—you know, your reader to go on. You want them to to be screaming all the time, basically.
10: And then toward the end, you see the highest peak, and then it levels down. Yeah, it levels down. mm -hmm. Although,
8: you know, in today's storytelling world, maybe this is not the right way to end the story.
2: Mm.
8: You know, it might be better to end on a higher peak.
2: So I do have a few moments in time. And by moments in time, I'm talking about the first scene and the last scene. So we're going to identify in the first scene what a character wants. Uh, and then we're going to have an, uh, a next moment that identifies what I call the point of no return. This is the big event that's going to push us into the main part of the story. It's the event that makes this movie this movie. Um, everything else on here is internal to the character. The point of no return is the one moment that's external to the character. It's the one thing that has to happen to them. Um, so. Uh, so we're talking about Groundhog Day, right? So the, the the point of no return is when he wakes up and discovers it's the same day again, right? And it should feel like it's this moment makes this movie this movie. Without that scene, you wouldn't have the movie Groundhog Day, right? It's absolutely essential. So it's, a, it's an important like moment like that that's going to drive the rest of the story. It's also external, you notice. It wasn't The point of no return is never somebody decides to do something. There's an element of fate that is involved when we're looking at the point of no return. So of all the elements, it's the one thing that's external that had to happen to him. He could have not had that happen, woken up and it was February 3rd and then this movie wouldn't be this movie. But for whatever reason, he woke up and it was February 2nd all over again. That's outside of his control. Um, If we were going to look at the movie Tootsie. Sometimes people say, oh, the point of no return is when he goes to audition for the part. That's a choice, right? So the point of no return needs to be external to the character. So I would not identify it as he goes to audition. Um, what, and what you want to identify is the moment outside of his control. So the part where everything really changes is when... So he could have blown that audition and he almost blows that audition. He comes very close to blowing it. But the female producer likes him, right? And at one point she says, I like him. I like her. We're gonna hire her. And she leans over and says, You've got the part. I'm sending the contract to your agent. That's the point of no return. That because that moment's outside of his control, right? That had nothing to do with his choice. He could have blown that audition. He almost did blow that audition. But that's the moment, boom, now we're in the movie known as Tootsie. Um, Another thing I like to think of, a great example of this is um, the differences going from act one and act two is the Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz, act one, it's black and white. Point of no return is she thinks that a tornado has lifted her house up and dumped her in the land of Oz and boom, we're in Technicolor. We want that feeling when we enter act two, we're in a whole new world we ain't in kansas anymore right so it's a whole new world they're they're facing it's one thing michael dorsey decides to audition one day as a woman it's another thing he's got to fool everybody 24 7 into thinking he's a woman that's the main story or in groundhog day he's now trapped in a cycle where every day is groundhog day that's the main part of the story Um, so there are two kinds of stories I, i talk about in the book comedy and tragedy um, and these are not, these definitions don't come from, don't blame me if you don't like them, they're from Aristotle. Um, these are the original academic defi- definitions of comedy and tragedy. So when I say comedy, I'm not talking about a haha comedy, I'm talking about an Aristotelian comedy. Um, and so an Aristotelian comedy, according to Aristotle, by definition, is where we have a protagonist who overcomes a flaw. So flaws can be the next element I'm going to talk about. Uh, and that they're, they're going to go through change, and then eventually they're going to have a happy ending. Um, structurally, we also have tragedies. A tragedy is going to be the opposite. So we have the same setup. We have the character wants something, they get it in a point of no return. But instead of going down, 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 and then coming up and having a happy ending, we're going to go in the opposite direction. They're going to go up, 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 before they come down and have their sad ending. Um, 95% of stories are going to be comedies, by the way. Oh, um, Yeah. Oh, at least 95%. The next important thing to talk about when I talk about the point of no return, um, in the point of no, no return the character gets something they want. They also get something they don't want. Um, and that's going to be what I call the catch. So you get what you want but with the catch. So Michael Dorsey gets a part but he's going to have to dress up as a woman. Um, uh, in Groundhog Day, Phil Connors only has to spend 24 hours in Puccitani. that was his want. But the, the catch is it's actually going to be the same 24 hours done over and over again. So the catch is attached, so it's a problem. We can't just give our character what they want because um, that deflates conflict. So you're giving them something that they want along with something they don't want. And the catch is also could be said to be the perfect test of their flaw. So the um, flaw in you know, Phil Connors' flaw is that he's self-centric. This is the, that the catch being that he's going to stop spending the same, same day over and over again. It's the perfect test of someone's flaw is that they're self-centered. Uh, in a comedy, it's going to end in a happy ending, but they're going to go down, 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 down uh, before. Because you, you got to hit rock bottom before you can make a change. Um, so it, keep in mind, in your typical ha-ha comedy, and your typical ha-ha comedy is an Aristotelian comedy. It's down, 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 down. Um, we're laughing as bad things are happening to the protagonist, they are not laughing. They're not having a good time in act two of a comedy. So they're gonna go down, down, down until they're gonna hit rock bottom. Uh, What I call their crisis. The crisis has two requirements. Uh, One is it's their absolute lowest place. Uh, And then it is the other requirement is that the opposite of the want. Um, actually, Groundhog Dig has a really interesting one in that he's actually finally spent after being stuck there, he finally tells the truth to Rita, the love interest, about what's going on and they actually have kind of a wonderful day together but it ends in this very bittersweet moment where they're falling asleep and he um, says and the terrible worst part is tomorrow you're going to think I'm a jerk again. And what is wonderful about it is this wonderful irony. And that's what we're setting up with the crisis being the opposite, this irony. He only wanted to spend 24 hours in Paxitani. Now he wishes the day could last forever because tomorrow she'll think he's a jerk again. So we're setting this delicious irony there. Um, Then the next thing we're gonna identify in the nutshell is we're now entering the act three. The beginning of act three is the climax of your movie. Uh, and the operative word that we're going to use, though, is the climatic choice. At the heart of a true climax, your protagonist is making a difficult decision. Uh, so, in Groundhog Day, his choice is to start, stop, to stop fighting it, to accept that he's there, and start trying to live every day for the fullest. And so, he becomes a really good person. He starts, you know, doing nice things and saving the day and doing thinking of others. Because what's the point in uh, living and, and trying to um, have uh, short-term gratitude? Uh, he's got to find a different experiment with a different way of living. So he actually starts becoming this town hero of this person who's known as this good guy because he's got nothing better to do. Um, and then finally breaks him free of the, the curse and in the final step, the final step is the very last uh, structural element time-wise, the very last scene of the movie. Um, and now the character's gonna come full circle. So if his uh, flaw was that he was self-centered, he's come full circle towards opposite strength, that he now is um, selfless, and right? Because he's he's been doing these things uh, for everybody in the town of Puxitani. And he um, uh, wakes up that final day, and he's actually, it's become February 3rd. He's free of the curse, and he actually wants to stay. Um, so those are the eight structural elements. And so like I said, it's not just moments in time. This is not a beat sheet method. Um, they are what's important is the glue. It's the, the, the structure that holds these pieces apart. It's the connection between these parts. These are not isolated moments in time. We can see right on the piece of paper what's working and what's not. And if it's not working, how to adjust it by seeing that it fits, you know, what, what do we need to change? Um, in order to meet the requirements, in order to to tell a story effectively.
4: It originates in Hollywood history by the accident of of, of the one reel film, 35 millimeter film that became standardized by the first decade of the 20th century. The first movies uh, by that that time, let's say by 1910, they're single reel experiences. They're 10 minutes long and um, for various reasons in the teens Hollywood split in two directions from the single reel film to what we call full-length features multi-reel films hour and a half to two hours three hours Um, and in the other direction to the serial which is a a reel or two installments a series and um, the uh, reason you have the the origin of sequences is that in the US, the distribution system was so rigorously one reel a week or two reels a week that when they started to generate full-length feature films, they were still distributed a couple of reels a week. So if you look at manuals of the time, screenwriting manuals, there were about 60 titles that came out in the 19-teens on how to write a photo play because the market was kind of wide open and people wanted to write these things. Um, you'll get instructions about making sure that each reel has a climax to it uh, so that the audience will be interested in seeing the next reel, and then they'll see the next one after that. So it was almost like a, a limited series, a feature film. Um, by the late teens, you're seeing them all, the distribution system is changing and you're seeing in the theaters what we would normally experience uh, as a full-length feature. but the The idea of writing by the reals survived into the twenties and thirties, and you can see the uh, see the evidence of it in the way the continuity scripts are marked. They're often marked by sequence letter, sequence A B C D, um, and that is uh, where what we call sequences come. The nomenclature comes from um, what Frank Danielle discovered. In uh, teaching in the 80s, he uh, discussed the three-act structure in terms of setting up a a situation, developing it, and then paying it off. Uh, But he found that the students struggled with the middle part of the script because it's intimidating. How do you fill up 60 pages in the middle? And uh, usually 30 pages to set it up, 60 pages in the middle, and 30 pages in the third act. Um, so he revived this idea of sequences. He said, well, don't think of it in terms of one you know, act of 60 pages. Think of it as four 15-minute scripts that each one builds on the last. And um, so thus the, the sequence approach is born. You're not going to try to tackle a whole 120 pages. Just figure out these 15 minutes the first one first 15 minutes and then the next 15 minutes then that's going to lead to some kind of major problem for a character so then they're going to try to explore the next for the next 15 minutes and the the effect is actually very liberating because you wind up not worrying about how you're going to fill up these pages but more about how you're going to trim down because now you've got all this material but it also um, uh, helps you explore a premise really fully. You have a character, let's just take a classic dramatic construction, a character wants something and there's obstacles. Okay? At the end of the first act, they, we know what they want and we know what the obstacles are going to be. Well, what is a character going to do? character doesn't know what the movie's about. character just thinks, oh, this is, this is easy, I can solve this. So they try something. And that's in your conceptualization of the story, the character tries the easiest thing that they can try. And then the filmmaker, the screenwriter, comes up with an obstacle why that doesn't work. And that's maybe 10, 15 minutes. All right, so now they gotta try something else. What's that gonna be? And you can develop it. And each sequence has its own integrity, ideally. The the paradigm is that each sequence is gonna have three acts also. It's gonna have some kind of setup. You don't have to do as much setup because we know the characters. But you're going to have to introduce new circumstances. They're going to try to get something, and then it's going to end with some kind of resolution, usually negative, because if it's positive, maybe the movie's over. But it uh, leads to the next sequence and to the next one, um, and so you wind up with actually a kind of a nested structure, because the scenes, dramatic scenes, have the same three acts. That's why I tend to like three acts. You can, it depends on how you define it. But if you understand it as working with tension, which tension is just putting something in the audience's mind, hope and fear. Character wants something. Are they gonna get it or not? That's what I'm wondering about. And if I care about the character, then I'm gonna stay tuned because I wanna see the answer to that. So it's, you don't need more than three acts for that. You just need to set that up and then you need to develop it and then you get the answer. So each act, uh, the, the act set up the whole thing then each sequence has its own okay character wants something and there's problems and then each scene has a character that wants something and there's obstacles so it's like um, this iterative structure that keeps the audience involved because we're constantly wondering about what uh, uh, how it's going to come out for the character and one thing that we also we cover in the in the book on the science of screenwriting is this, this process of connection to a main character and what the theories are about why we um, uh, have that. And, and it's certainly important if you come into a, if you're in a park and you come in up on a, on a tennis game and two people are really battling each other, it may be interesting, but it's not going to be dramatic to you because you don't know them. But if, if you do know one, if you love one of them, and you know that they just mortgaged their house and put everything on this game and then you know the other person is a hustler then every t- oh my god you've got something it's transformational but you have to make that connection emotionally um, and so um, so to get back about the sequence structure you have uh, mini versions of the uh, three acts in sequences and then in the scenes and that is the suspense the tension that keeps us interested. And we also we have a chapter on the contrast in the film. And that plays also into this uh, uh, approach, which is that in order to maintain audience attention, the stimulus has to be changed frequently. Otherwise you you zone out. Uh, you, you, you'll lose connection. Uh, you, you'll think about other things and you need to reset the audience's brain periodically. And filmmakers do it, you can see evidence of it in changing light and dark, loud and soft, fast and slow, but you also see it in tension and release. Tension maintained for too long it's tedious, but if you release it and give us a chance to reset, then you can go on and build it up again and again and again until you reach the, the culmination of the picture, and then finally you, you try to release it entirely. And, and then people get people to say yeah I I, love, I want to see that movie again I'm going to tell all my friends I want to see it. <laughs>
0: no.
5: Generally uh, what I'll do is I'll start with a premise line I'll write out a premise line sort of for basically for me like the foundation of the of the script couple of sentences take take you know from start to finish um, and then I'll expand that into I don't know, maybe two three four pages just sort of write it in sections so I'll, I'll divide it into into three. Basically, if it's a movie, three movie acts, but you know, more in quarters. So it's like the equivalent of quarter, 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 which takes me through the four quarters or the three acts of the of the um, of the movie. Um, so it, it, it's it, I can keep it because one of the things that happens when you start writing it for me, I and mean, when I start writing out and writing outline in, in um, you know uh, uh, prose form, is that. You know, if you don't, if you don't, for me, if I don't kind of stop, you know, stop writing at a certain point, you know, you end up with. Let's say your outline is four page. You're writing it just outlining four pages. The first two pages may really only be the first quarter of your script because you know you you know you end up writing so much, and then then you have to really then ultimately you end up with kind of uh, you know disproportionate uh, disproportionate uh, acts. So basically, I'm just trying to to, to write it. Uh, as tightly as I can. You know, I'll write it long and then I'll, then I'll edit it, but in the end I want to end up with kind of four relatively close uh, uh, descriptions of each quarter, okay? So let's say that's, that ends up being three, four pages, whatever. Then if it's, on, if it's an assignment, then I'll, then I'll give it to the executive or whatever. I'll get notes on it, rework it, and then if it's not for me, I'll do the same thing for myself. And then what I do is I divide The, um, and this was a, you know, really, I have to credit Writers Bootcamp for this because they really, this was kind of the way they taught me how to do it and how I always do it now, and I taught other people. And I I think it's pretty, I mean, it's it's one of those things that just sort of like, I I don't think it's an an uncommon way to do it, but it kind of boils it down to, I think, a really effective way of doing it is that um, you divide, I divide it up into 12 sequences. Three sequences in the first act, six in the second act, and three in the third act of equal weight. So basically, you know, if you're writing a 120-page script, or you know, it's 10 pages a sequence. If you write, if you're more like a 100-page script, it's eight or nine pages a sequence. And I beat out the list of scenes. So I'll take, I, I turn, I create a, a sequence sentence. You know, for, so this is sequence one, two, and three. So out of that sequence sentence that I write, write out, pulled from the outline, the longer outline, I then write a list of the scenes that will comprise that 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 sequence. So I'll put like the scenes in a row and then I'll figure out how many pages that scene will approximately be so that I can add it up, add up each sequence and say at the end those six scenes will equal eight and a half pages or something. And it's an estimate. It may sometimes I'm very off, but it's an estimate. Um, And this is just my kind of organized way of doing it, you know, and and how I, I don't get lost in the process, you know, and how I really kind of stay on track. This is just mine. Everybody has their way of doing it. Um, and so I do that. So ultimately, you end up with basically 12 series of of scene of scene lists. So, and which should e- ultimately, when you add it all up, should equal you know whatever your page desired page count is 100, 105 pages, 120 pages, some an estimate. Um, and then I take that, I put that onto my final draft, that list onto my final draft, and I create a slug line over each one. You know, interior living room night, exterior, you know, baseball field day, whatever. And, and so I have the line and then I, you know, the, the, what, the, what the scene is about and then I have the slug line. So basically what I end up with is a whole written script except without dialogue essentially. Um, and then you go in and just you, know, you craft it. And to me it's, just, it's a very step-by-step process so it's like an accordion, you're constantly expanding that accordion until you have the whole script written. So it, that, 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 that works for me um, but everybody does it differently.
6: A story map is a structural template that's followed by most commercial films and it breaks a story, a, a film narrative into four acts, Act 1, Act 2A, Act 2B and Act 3 and it contains four major story engines that drive each one of the individual acts and eight to twelve uh, major signpost plot beats. It's not deciding what you will write. It's Providing a form and a template with which the writer pours their story into. So a writer still makes their own unique creative decisions, but it, they may want to think about what page ranges those decisions fall in and the kind of basic beats that would inform the storytelling.
10: Okay, where do you think many new writers go wrong in terms of the map, in terms of the layout? What were most new writers' weak mm-hmm. in that structure?
6: Often it's overwriting to the point where those beats are falling too late. Uh, like I mentioned the inciting incident should probably be between eight, eight to page 8 to 12. But we also want something that I call the strong movement forward, the, the next major beat to be in the page 18 to 20 range. Sometimes that doesn't happen until 28 and then the true end of Act 1. Which should be around page thirty is in the beginner script, not happening until page thirty-eight, and that really makes the reader anxious and it slows down the pace of the story and the structure. So it's not hitting the proper page ranges. Uh, again, this isn't deciding what you should write, but it's deciding uh, basically what page ranges the major beats should be, how you should tell the story to some extent. Okay, kind of that outer frame of the story with which you're pouring your unique unique decisions into. But as far as mistakes, there is uh, a major signpost beat falling too early, too late, or just not being there. Uh, For example, there is a beat that I call the Assumption of Power or Declaration of War beat and this should happen around page 75 and you can see it in movies, it happens around minute 75. If that's not there, if there's not that moment where this character really feels their true power and acts in a way that makes them rise to the occasion and kind of a, a declaration of war or an attack and a declaration of intent and something that taps their inner strength, if that's not happening in that page range I don't think the story is necessarily moving as it should. So a classic example would be in The Karate Kid, the show me paint house moment. Show me paint the fence, show me sand the floor. And it's that moment at which Daniel LaRusso realizes he's been learning karate all along even though Mr. Miyagi has been making him do all his chores. So he asks him to show him the the positions that he's put his hands as he's been doing these chores and it turns out he's been learning karate this whole time. So he really Daniel really realizes his true power, realizes he can do karate and he's doing it already. You want every scene to advance the story, to explore the controlling theme or reveal crucial character. Okay? It has to advance the story so definitely that first one it has to do in some way and then ideally it will also be on theme, that major theme, that central theme that this particular story is exploring. And then, third, does it reveal some crucial character? You know, something that we haven't seen before about this particular character. I think it is. You know, I think structure is very important, and hitting those page points is important. uh, If for no other reason, because every reader in Hollywood has internalized that structure. But I mean, the real proof in the pudding is that when you read pro scripts by produced writers, by the top writers in Hollywood who are making the top money. They use this structure. So there has to be something about it that is the reason why the first act of a movie is around 30 minutes. I mean, there's something there, there's some reason why that works.
7: I work with clients as a coach, you know, a consultant, and help people do this and help guide them through the process, but I also do it myself as a writer. And I do think that the Save the Cat. Uh, book and its tools are helpful. I, I mean I my favorite thing about Save the Cat really are the ten genres and working with and they each have like five subgenres each uh, that he goes into in the second Save the Cat book. Save the Cat goes to the movies. Those genres I think are super helpful and very original and revolutionary for writers coming up with ideas for a movie. So I highly recommend those. But he also has the beat sheet, which is the thing that, that Save the Cat's most known for, which is the 15-point structural paradigm which I think was Blake Snyder building on other paradigms people had for three-act structure going back to probably Aristotle but certainly Sid Field and other people since that. And uh, I think he came up with some really good ideas for here's what the first half of Act 2 of a movie usually looks like and here's what the second half of Act 2 usually looks like and here's what the second half of Act 1 tends to look like and he came up with fun names for these different structural beats or sections in a movie. So I think that is a helpful tool. Some people don't like it, and you know, um, or have a love-hate relationship with trying to like fulfill, especially when it's like it has to happen on this page or that page, which I'm not super strict about, but but I do think he had some pretty good arguments for why he felt this is a good page length and this is a good place in the movie for certain things to happen. So anyway, when you do a, one of those beat sheets, it ends up being like a four-page document, uh, I think ideally. where So what that means is you're not spelling out every single scene, you're not figuring out every single thing that happens in your movie yet because that would take 10 or 15 pages. There's no way to really do that in four pages. If you're trying to do that in four pages and I've seen people do it often, the note they're going to get back is this isn't enough for a movie. There's not enough scenes here. There's not enough that's happening for this to fill two hours so it's really about kind of summarizing the key sections of the movie and then the key points like the midpoint and the break in Act 2 and the break in Act 3 which are just moments. You know, you kind of figure out what those moments are and then you summarize the sections in between so you kind of have an overview of the structure. So that was one of Blake's, Blake Snyder's big contributions to the world and, and, I, and I think it's helpful. So I, I will use that as one method for kind of working toward a structure. I think there is some truth to that 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 people are a lot of times saying the same things in different books and different paradigms for story and screenwriting, Um, but I also think people do come at it differently and sometimes have different conclusions about, you know, some of the precepts that they come up with. I mean, like for instance, the Dramatica theory of story, which I've played with a lot over the years, has a pretty different and specific take on how stories work compared to. You know, save the cat and like the hero's journey, the Christopher Vogler book. That is, my understanding is that's a certain kind of story he's talking about, which is a hero's journey type story. Which not every story is a hero's journey type story, but if you're writing that, that book really goes into kind of what the, the structural points tend to be in those kind of stories. Um, and but. But yeah, I do think to a large extent people are speaking about the same things. Like Most people agree that like the end of Act 2 of a movie about three-quarters of the way through there's usually a major defeat, crisis, all is lost moment and then there's one last kind of chance in the third act to solve whatever the main kind of problem of that story was. And they might call it different things but they kind of are talking about
10: the same thing. The first speeches I ever wrote were for TEDx Orange Coast. I wrote eight of them and i was like i don't know what i'm doing you know uh, i know how to tell a story but i didn't really know how do you get the person's life from point a to point b to, to the end right and so i would get halfway through the script and by the way i had to turn around a lot of the scripts in 2 to 3 weeks eight of them wow so i didn't have much time And I was working seven days a week and like I better figure this out oh my goodness right (laughs) and um, so the rules were I was anti-rule really and then one day I was working on a on a speech um, for this ted talk one of them and I wanted to do this woman justice I just adored her her name is Amy Purdy and she and I were collaborating together and i just thought i've got to do this justice what how do i tell a story you know we were in there we were doing stuff but i uh, it just wasn't hitting the mark and so i said okay google let's look at my eight, magic eight ball let me just shake it and see what comes back and i just typed in story arc and all of a sudden i clicked on images and i saw something called the hero's journey and i was like you I feel like I've heard about that before. What is this crazy thing called the hero's journey?" And I looked at the visual, it was a beautiful visual, somebody taking their time to really show me all the steps, and I was like, wait, this is, how I, this is how this works. I can do this. This is exactly what I need. Amy had eight minutes. TED Talks are often 18 minutes but she only had eight minutes, that's what they gave her and some of my other speakers had 12 minutes and you know which four minutes is a huge difference (laughs) let me tell you eight is tight and so I was like I can do this I can cross the threshold with her story this is wonderful and we did it and her talk went viral and so this was back in 2011 and it was affirmation for me and I was like I don't know these Hollywood people this way. But I love them. <laughs> right. And so then I started following that. For certain people, I started using the hero's journey. And because there are their emotional beats in there. And I noticed that my speeches were following those beats. I would just look over, I'd be like, is this going the way? It is. I would find it. And I would just mirror them. And they could almost cross map. And what was beautiful about that is that the the people i tend to work with the speakers i tend to work with and especially now now that i've been doing this a long time i'm really i really want beauty out in the world and i want my speakers to disseminate that that beauty which they already have in them right and the hero's journey really does that because the audience doesn't hear the speaker They hear what the speaker has been through but they only think about themselves and what they've been through in relation to what that speaker has been through so you know speakers will be like I don't know if I can say that and I'm like it's not about you the audience is gonna say oh my god I went through that too you know or my mother went through that or someone I knew or you know and they they start to they hear your story but in relationship to themselves and so that that hero's journey has been incredibly important. Um, in, in, in the storytelling process.
11: The first act has to deliver the dramatic question, you know. Ideally, there is a protagonist who has a very clear objective. Ideally, there are stakes, so there are consequences if that protagonist doesn't succeed. And the higher those stakes, the more dramatic the story. Ideally there is a scene, and there is a whole book, uh, Save the Cat, that is kind of based on that. Ideally you have given the audience a reason to side with that protagonist, which a lot of movies and scripts leave out completely, which is amazing to me because it's one of the main ingredients. Why would I as an audience care if that character sees his father before he dies? You know, There must be something that shows me a humanity inside of that character. It can be a bad, bad mafia, serial killer, whatever guy, but something that I can relate to where we share uh, our humanity in that moment so that he becomes the vehicle for me to discover things about myself in the end. I think that's the secret that every audience, it's a very, that's a very selfish process. I think every audience really comes to the theater to learn something about themselves and not about Oklahoma or space or whatever, but about their emotions in that moment. But that only works if you can create a connection between the protagonist and the audience earlier. So that would probably be the formula looking for, is there a connection, is there a clear want, which leads to the dramatic question, which is will this protagonist successfully save the love of his life, whatever, whatever. And then you go into the second act where there are where you have to look at the conflicts is there enough is he, is what he, the steps he is doing are they escalating in a way that at the same time is believable but also doesn't need too much patience because in real life he would probably first phone his grandmother and then he would go and we don't want to sit through all that we want the condensed version we want the fake version but we want it to feel emotionally real is a hard thing to achieve but it, it's something that you can very clearly track throughout a second act I think. And the first half of the second act you know, normally traditionally is, is called like the fun and games part which is where most the se- of the scenes that you see in a trailer are in the first half of the second act where the promise of the movie, the reason why people came is to see those scenes. You know, It's like oh there's a a man that talks to his snake, Mel-, Mel Gibson with his beaver in Jodie Foster's movie, you know, that would be the first half of the second act, where we kind of have a little bit of time. The clock isn't ticking quite as fast yet, and then most of the time the mid point, halfway through the story, is a more fundamental twist to the whole story. It turns out the beaver is real or has whatever, whatever, you know, can actually talk, or something that changes our whole look on the story and the direction of the story, which I think is super important because otherwise a second act gets very long. Like if it's only a one-directional thing, which exists of course and exists successfully, but it's very hard to execute, to keep the audience's attention without something that in the middle kind of breaks the movie up and gives it a whole different direction. And a lot of time, like in a a spy movie, it would be… Our protagonist finds out that the agency he's working for is actually the the bad guys. Blah blah blah. blah. So suddenly it's a, or in Mad Max, it's when they have been driving into that one direction and now they've achieved whatever they need to achieve and now they're literally turning around, coming back. That would be kind of the midpoint. Then the stakes have to be raised in the second half um, of the second act and lead to the major confrontation. Then. If you go by the hero's journey, which I believe in a lot, Joseph Campbell and all that kind of stuff, there is the major confrontation. It looks like the hero is going to die. He metaphorically dies, sheds his old ego, learns something about himself that he didn't know before, that is most of the time painful and that enables him because he doesn't break in that moment. He almost breaks, you get him to the breaking point and you can see that in almost every movie that that is being done because we need to really break a character to see what he's made of, right? If you never challenge a character, you don't know what he really has inside of him. So you almost break him and in that process of staring death in the face metaphorically or obviously in a romantic comedy it would be the girl is dating another guy, you know? It doesn't have to be death literally but it's the death of that. So now our protagonist learns something about himself that was in his blind spot that he didn't know before which now enables him to, be, to use that as a tool to change, that's why character arcs and development are so important, become a different person and that enables him to achieve the goal that he hadn't been able to achieve before. Now we're in the third act where most of the time he has to defend, where, he's, where he is challenged by the antagonistic force that he's been battling throughout the second act one last time and that's where the big dragon or Sauron or whatever you know rears his head for the first time. Attacks him, and he has to prove that the change that he just went through is a permanent one that can be challenged, and he will, will still survive with his old ego. End of story. So that would be at least the that is the mythology, the, the thousands of years old you know paradigm that stories are building. You can go away from that paradigm as much as you want, but I think it helps to know that that is what audiences intuitively are expecting and someone who does that really great is Tarantino like I don't think there's anyone who knows this story structure better and messes with it and messes with your expectation which is great but it's different from not knowing it and just writing something into the blue and then wondering why people don't identify with the characters or aren't hooked to certain developments or something like that so that would be my my formula structure that I kind of if I'm, if I'm reading it and I'm engrossed then it doesn't matter you know, if it's a three-act structure or whatever. But if I feel like my attention kind of drifts and I don't really care, most of the time the answer is in
1: that structure that somehow doesn't deliver what it needs to deliver. Some writing teachers say the three-act structure is dead, it's, um, it's, it's remedial. Um, it's it it's it's not going to um, it's it's going to kill uh, any creativity, and the problem with that is that um, they don't understand what the three act structure is because the three act structure is um, has nothing to do with plotting, in my opinion, and unfortunately the uh, a lot of story structure is taught. By story analysts who are sort of brilliant left brain left brainers and are, are really adept at deconstructing a masterpiece, and and sort of the implication is that now that we've deconstructed this, you should go off and write your masterpiece. And while there's tremendous amount of value in 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 studying film theory or 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 uh, or you know. Uh, Film theory, because it's that—that's—that's that's, you know, deconstructing Casablanca or Citizen Kane is is going to help you understand uh, uh, how a story was built to some degree, but it's not going to teach you process. It's not going to teach you how to organize your ideas when you look at a movie like Casablanca and uh, you think about the. Epstein brothers writing, uh, you know, or structuring this this movie, they. um, I'm interested in in the process. I'm interested in how did somebody come to write this? In other words, you can you can sort of like, just because you deconstruct something, it's it's like vivisection. You can't you can't take something dead and look at all of its existing parts, and then. And then reanimate it. It's not going to come back to life. And so, just because you can break down this thing into its its sort of separate parts, doesn't mean you're going to uncover the mystery of what the thing actually is. In other words, story structure is really the DNA of your protagonist's transformation. Does that make sense? Story structure is the DNA of a protagonist's transformation. It's not. You know, in the midpoint, there should be a um, a reversal. Like, I don't even know what that means. You hear it all the time with with uh, uh, these story analysts. That there should be a reversal. But what the hell does um you know does does It's a Wonderful Life have a, a a reversal? That's where Mr. Potter offers Jimmy Stewart a job, and Jimmy Stewart says no. I don't know. I, I don't. I think of I think of story structure as Uh, not a conceptual model something you can figure out but it's it's more of a uh, uh, experiential model in other words your protagonist goes through a series of experiences that lead to a transformation and uh, I think of story structure as an immutable paradigm for a spiritual transformation okay it's immutable it never changes but that doesn't make it that doesn't um, that doesn't limit your creativity that actually paradoxically opens your creativity. In other words, when when you really understand what story structure is, it moves you beyond your limited imagination of what your story is. I always tell my writers, your idea of your story is not the whole story. It's not that it's incorrect, it's that it's incomplete. And so if you were to distill story structure to three words, it would be desire, surrender, transformation. So show me, any story. There's, you're going to have a character that wants something, desire. You're going to have a character that lets go of the meaning they made out of their goal, surrender. You're going to have a character that experiences transformation. In other words, a shift in perception, a reframing of their relationship to their goal. Show me a story that doesn't have that and I'll show you a story that doesn't work you know, or is really experimental.